Amen. You may be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, please turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. This morning we will be considering Peter's words to the dispersed churches in Asia Minor from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. You can also find the text for today's message on the insert inside of your bulletin, along with a brief outline of today's passage. When we began this series in August, walking through the book of 1 Peter, we did so with the overarching goal of finding hope for living faithfully during trying times. You know, next Sunday, Lord willing, we will celebrate the 504th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses on the church doors in Wittenberg, Germany, kicking off, according to some people, the Protestant Reformation. And one of the major issues that Luther was facing in his day was the right and the ability for the common man to read the Bible and apply it to their lives. Luther understood, as did the other reformers, that the only hope for living faithfully during trying times would be found within and through obedience to the Word of God. And it was to that end that many of them fought and sacrificed even unto their lives. May we not take for granted that what we do today freely and openly was bought in blood. Ultimately, we realize the ability to live by faith was bought by the blood of Christ himself. And it was his sacrifice that makes it even possible for us to live rightly before God. And this was the thrust of um, chapter 1. If you've been with us through this series, Peter really lays that groundwork of we are who we are because of who Christ is. And here in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he starts applying that to specific scenarios, specific situations. We are in a series of submission and suffering, um, the second half of chapter 2 and the first half of chapter 3. And we will, Lord willing, continue um, studying that specific application before we move on to others. And so what we will see this morning is that we are called to suffer. We are called to submit because of Christ. Because of Christ. And in fact, Christ is the one that allows us to do these things. Before I say more, would you please follow along with me as I read for us God's word. I will be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2. I will begin in verse 18 and read to the conclusion of the chapter. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you may follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like straying sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseers, overseer of your souls. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And he has promised us, just as the rain falls and gives life to the earth, so too will his word bring forth life wherever it may go. Let us now go to the Lord and pray his blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, in the ground that is our heart, we pray that you would sprout faith and trust and hope and love and endurance. Lord, may the fruit of the Spirit be evident in our lives. Bind us to your word. Teach us to obey. Show us that it is good. And it is when we do these things, we will then look to the situations of the world and what is going on around us and the, the struggles, and they will look quite small indeed. For we are focused upon you and the hope we have in you and that which is to come. Lord, strengthen your people this day. Give us understanding that we might understand your word, that seeing we might see and hearing we might hear. And we pray all of this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, Peter spends verses 13 to 17, the section just prior to this one, focusing on the sphere of government. And we spent two Sundays um, addressing that, uh, what it looks like to submit to government authorities. This is a major sphere. It it affects a a great portion of our lives, if you really think about it. Uh, The government and its influence touches many aspects of what we do and and how we conduct our day-to-day lives. But here, Peter shifts and he addresses another major sphere, possibly a greater sphere, and that is the one of the household. This passage, and Lord willing, the next, really will address those areas of our lives, and we will see how we are to act in submission in those areas for his glory and for our good. I love how a fellow pastor put it in in reflecting upon this section. Um, He said this, uh, Pastor David Strain, God wants us to defy expectations so that those around us who may oppose the gospel might be put to silence. In fact, even by our witness, they may be brought to repentance and faith in Christ for themselves. This is the agenda. And it's important to notice at the very heart of his apologetic, of his way of helping believers present the difference the gospel makes to the world, is his understanding of suffering and how we should respond to opposition. The hard truth of it is, when we live like God's word calls us to live, there will be opposition. There will be consequences. But knowing that and understanding that cannot and must not affect how we act. We are called to stand firm and to be a beacon of hope and light no matter what is going on around us. I would go so far to say we are called to live, to live, to truly live, that others may see what life actually looks like. Peter continues in our text to prepare us to rightly live by exploring the extent of suffering. And he roots all of this, as I've already said, in Christ himself. This morning, I want us to consider three ways to live, three ways to live from our text. And by looking at each one, it will 
prepare us in a, in a special or unique way to face the suffering that is ahead. The first call to live is to live as humble servants. We find this in verses 18 to 20. The second call to live is to live in imitation of Christ himself. Find this in 21 to 23. And then third call to live is to call to live in light of the gospel, especially in the cross. And we find that in our final verses. So we will learn this day how to live. And by learning how to live, we will learn how to face the suffering that is ahead of us. Would you please follow along with me as we first consider this by living as humble servants. And much like how Peter began verse 13, this in in some ways is a summary of what he said in the previous section. He says in verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Now, let's take a moment and consider what these phrases mean um, in order to fully appreciate what's being said here. Uh, Because depending on your translation, it may say servants, it may say slaves. Um, You could also translate this word uh, employers, or employees, excuse me. Um, And I I really like um, one commentary in particular. The Tyndale Commentary series gets this right, because anytime we hear those words um, as, as an American culture, we have a very specific mind Um, when it comes to the word servant or slave, and it's helpful to correct that. And I love how the Tyndale commentary does that. The horrible degradation of slaves in the 19th century America gives the word slave or servant a far worse connotation than is accurate for the society to which Peter was writing. It must be remembered that first century slaves or servants were well-treated, were not unskilled labor, but often managers, overseers, and trained members of the various professions, such as doctors, nurses, teachers, musicians, and skilled artisans. There was an extensive Roman legislation regulating the treatment of slaves. They were most often paid for their services and could expect eventually to purchase their own freedom. Therefore, even though there's no exact parallel to such servant status in our society, The fact is, this is the most common kind of employee-employer relationship in the ancient world, and it encompasses a broad range of degrees of function and economic freedom. And that means the application of Peter's directive to employees today is a very appropriate one. Unfortunately, many of you would say that you're slaves to your work, and um, that quip right there would be more accurate to describe this relationship than how often we think of slave to master. Um, But I I offer that um, just to say we need to be careful when we see this word that our mind doesn't go to that 19th century application. And in fact, if you look at the Greek here, uh, it's not the word doulos, uh, which is commonly uh, the Greek word for slave, but it is more appropriate to be translated as servant. But I, I give all that, and by understanding that and having that in our mind, we quickly realize... Peter is telling us, as you work in various capacities, you are to be like servants to those whom you are employed under. In fact, he says, be subject to our masters with all respect. Christians in the workforce should make for the best employees. We really should represent the best of the best. We should desire to use our time well, 
We should desire to serve with gladness. We should desire to meet and or exceed the goals that are placed over us. Now look, that does not mean we have to blindly follow what we're told to do. That most certainly is not what is at stake here. And it, even more so, does not mean, nor can it mean, that we can be pushed by an employer into sin or sinful practice. That is simply not the case. That's not biblical. And we talked about that in 13 to 17. We must not be forced into sin. However, it does mean out of a righteous fear of God, we must strive to live rightly with one another and to honor those that have been placed over us in whatever circumstance they have been. Now, we may be tempted to push on that, and I, I encourage you to do so. But one of the areas that, that people may tend to push that idea is, I will gladly submit to those placed over me when they deserve it, when they act in a way that is deserved of respect. I think that's just fine. However, we need to be careful, because what does Peter go on to say? Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. I really wish I could tell you this morning that you will always get repaid good for good. I would hope that I could tell you that, but I can't. I wish that I could offer you assurance that when you do what is right, when you perform your task, when you go above and beyond, when you act with integrity, that people will notice it and praise you for it and you will be acknowledged in some way. But as we all know, that may not be the case. The reality is, is more often than not, you're going to be mistreated, looked down upon, shunned, thought less of for your Christian ethics. You will be wronged at times. You will be looked over for promotions that you deserve. It is possible that you will be cheated. And taking it to the ultimate conclusion, using that, that phrase slave here, possibly even beaten for doing that which is right. And yet we are commanded by God to not repay evil for evil. I like um, what Paul tells to the uh, church in Rome in Romans 12, 19 to 20. And this is a quotation of Proverbs 25, 22. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. While we may be tempted to want to lash out at those who wrong us, especially those who have been placed in a position of authority over us, we have to remember the Lord has promised to repay. And if, think about this, if God was not willing to spare his own son, how just do you think his justice will be to those that wrongfully harm his children? If God was not willing to spare Christ, how much do you think that judgment will be? Heaping coals upon their head is what the text says. Judgment upon judgment will be piled on top of them as we strive to do good in spite of injustice, in spite of wrongdoing, in spite of mistreatment. 
That's what Paul tells the church in Rome. Um, it's in our Proverbs, and that's really the, the thrust of what Peter has got here. And Peter goes so far to say that this type of action, this type of behavior is gracious. It is, it is the grace of God. Um, in fact, he says that very clearly. Verse 19, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, if you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And the way Peter says this, it guarantees we will suffer. There's there's no mistake here with his language. When you suffer injustice, we will be sinned against, your brothers and sisters. We will face wrongdoing. But it is a sign of God's grace in those moments when we endure. It's a sign of God's grace that we are persecuted for our faith. Again, I I point to Christ, and, and our second two points really drive this home. They beat him and they killed him for his faith. And so when you were beaten and you were taken to that point, we can say, praise God, they're treating me just like Jesus. And that is a reason to rejoice. Now, I I love what he says here, and this is a good reminder. What credit is it when you sin and are beaten, you endure? That's called justice. When you do wrong and you're treated wrongly because you did wrong, that is justice. But what the text is talking about and what Peter is talking about is when you do right and you receive wrong. That's grace. That's God's grace. Because we are called to live in imitation of Christ. We're called to serve as Christ served. We're called to humble ourselves as Christ humbled himself. And we see this really in our our next point. Not only do we live as humble servants, we live in imitation of Jesus. We see this in verses 21 to 23. And look, I, I... I will say this as lovingly as I can this morning, and, and please hear, hear the thrust of this. Every time you feel like you've been wronged, every time you feel like what you are asked to do is unjust, unfair, or beneath you, every time you're overlooked, mistreated, something bad happens, you need to first look at the cross and consider Jesus and why he was there. And then... After you look to the cross and you consider Jesus and think about why he was there, go back to that situation and go, is this anything to that degree? Does this match that act of injustice? Does, that, does this even come close to the degree to which our Savior suffered? Most often, the answer will be no. And it will humble us. Peter, um, he says it like this, For to this you have been called... Let me pause real quickly. Christians, you have been called by God to suffer. You have been called by God as Christians to suffer. Maybe that will help us in our times of... This you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You were called by God to wrongly suffer for doing good. You've been called by God to be the example just like Christ was. Because the only person, 
the only person in this world who lived a perfect life and received evil for good truly was Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And I, I use this as an example, and it's often a painful one. When you're out driving, and you're busy in your thoughts or listening to your audiobooks as I like to do, and you see those blue lights behind you, and you look down, and you're doing 70 and a 55, and you're like, oh, great. Why is it in that moment your first thought is, the 10 people that passed me were going faster than me. Isn't that almost always the thought? Every time? Why was it me when there was a dozen people that weren't caught? Let me ask you this. Why isn't your thought, I was speeding. And the 150 days between the last time I was caught speeding, I have been speeding. I am wrong. And I deserve that which is coming. Don't you get it, Christian? that's a painful example. We don't like it, but it does reveal the truth of our heart, doesn't it? We, we often look at injustice when it's applied to us, not realizing that we have escaped justice so many times. So many times we have been in the wrong and we do deserve what we receive. And yet we, we, we complain and, and we grumble. But that was not the case for Christ. Christ did not sin. He did no wrong. He loved and served those around him. He sacrificed and went out of his way to minister to those who sought him. He was under constant scrutiny by the Jewish elite. He bore accusation after accusation, yet his focus was constantly on the Father. Peter says it so beautifully in verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. Christ put his hands in the Father and said, I will trust the good judge. I will trust the judge who judges impartially and sees all and knows my heart and knows my actions. Calvin, commenting on this section, says here, Peter points out what we are to imitate in Christ, calmly bearing wrong and not to avenge wrong. For such is our disposition. When we receive injuries our mind immediately boils over with revengeful feelings. But Christ abstained from every kind of retaliation. Our minds, therefore, ought to be bridled, lest we should seek to render evil for evil. And I know this is hard. And I know that this doesn't seem fair. And I know that this isn't easy. Because I can tell you from my own heart. But we have to have the mind of Christ. Remember, Peter is writing to the church and saying, be holy, because I, your Lord thy God, am holy. Christ-like in your actions, in your attitudes, in your behaviors, in your decisions, in your day-to-day interactions, be holy. Peter really is defining for us what it means to be Christians. Christians, you could put that in the dictionary. Christian, experts at suffering. That, that could define us, and, and should. We are to be the best possible at not reviling when we are reviled against. We are to be masters of not threatening others when we're threatened, even when it's deserved. And, and lest we think this is too unfair, remember the original audience, they were facing Romans. They were facing Romans and, and Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers who had the right to enact 
capital punishment immediately, really upon a whim at times in their system. Soldiers who shot first and asked questions later. That, it is to that audience and that circumstance and, and that tension that Peter writes to this church. And what he's calling us to do, dear Christian, means doing what is good and right. Maybe in light of imprisonment or worse. And again, remember, Roman prison was not prison in America. If someone did not come to you and bring you clothes and bring you food and bring you books, you died. You died. And then there was one less person and there's a free cell and then they brought the next one in. For Christ, doing what was right and not fighting back meant going to the cross. And in our final section here, we learn the third way which we are to live. We're called to live in light of that cross. And would you look with me at this section as we see the ultimate example of humble service. We only have to ask, how far was, willing, was Christ willing to take humility? How far was Christ willing to take submission on behalf of sinners? Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took them to the cross. Willingly. Again, I love how the, the Tyndale commentary notes this. The fact that Christ bore our sins mean... It means that God the Father counted our sins against Him. And in a way not fully understood for us, He laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 6. The Father thought of our sin as belonging to Christ. And He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And then punished Him with the anger against sin, separation from God, and death which we fully deserve. In this way, Christ was a substitute for His people, one who stood in their place. Do you understand the weight of this this morning? Do you fully understand if we're going to cry injustice, if we're going to cry unfairness, if we're going to wave the banner of I'm in the right and they're in the wrong, we need to start here. No, God, you were in the wrong. Because you gave to Christ what I deserved. You put on him what was mine. You took his righteousness and placed it on me, which I have no reason to own and to have, apart from your mercy and your grace. If we really are going to trumpet that banner of unfairness and injustice, and it, it's why it irks me so much in this world that people like to claim that, and that that becomes their battle cry, injustice. The only injustice that's really ever happened is that Jesus went. And then he went willingly that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Healed completely and fully. You who trust in Christ today have been forgiven. Those injustices have been covered. Those wounds have been healed over. For you were straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is who you are in light of the cross. And it's when we, when we encompass that, when we recognize that and we appreciate that, once again, we go back to that slight, to that injustice, to that looked over promotion, to that mistreatment because of who we are as Christians. And, and we see that in the workforce. We see that over with government authorities. We see that in our relationships. And we go... That is nothing compared to the cross of Christ. 
It pales in comparison. Oh, that, that I would be so privileged as to suffer in a slight way compared to the suffering that he took for you and for me. So what does life look like, Christian? What does it mean to live? We've looked at three different points of what life looks like. Well, I'll tell you this. To truly be a Christian means to live a life of humble submission. It means doing what is right and doing what is good. And Peter's already promised in this chapter, both of those things will, one, put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, and two, lead to God being glorified on the day of their visitation, quite possibly to their salvation and repentance. Christian, it also looks like loving one another, especially those of the household of faith. It means caring for and lifting one another up, recognizing that you don't bear that burden alone. You don't bear that sacrifice alone, but we all do. For to injure the body is to injure the whole. Because when we look at what our Savior did, everything else pales in comparison. When we look ahead to what is waiting for us, if you are in a state of despair and you are in the dark of this and, and injustice on top of injustice on top of injustice is piled upon you, either in your family or at work or in society, I encourage you to do this. Go home and read, Rome, or read Revelation 18, 19, and 20 today. Go ahead and throw in 21. Just read that last section and, and read what's to come. Read what is ahead for you just a short while from now. Average lifespan is about 80 years of life nowadays, um, plus or minus some in short period very short window we will all be there those of us who trust in christ read that and then again go back to that situation to that injustice to that suffering and go i can hold on a little while longer why because jesus did it to death you were like sheep lost and wandering but now you are under the loving care of the shepherd there is safety and security in knowing that you are his and he watches over your very soul. Now, I can't conclude a sermon on a passage such as this this morning without pleading with you. You need Jesus in your life. You need him for the forgiveness of your sins. He is your only hope. He is your only advocate between you and God the Father. If you are here today or you're joining us online and you don't trust in Christ, you need him. Because let me tell you, if you're facing the suffering of this world, if you're facing these injustices and you don't have Jesus, they will overwhelm you. And they will be unfair. And you won't be able to stand against them. And you won't be able to withhold the, the torrential flood of the world as it beats you into submission and wears you away. You can't do it. You cannot do it. And so I plead with you today, if you do not yet know him as Lord and Savior, come to him today, even now. Don't wait. Please, make yourself right before the Father. Christ took his own self. He said, no one takes my life, but I offered up as a sacrifice. Christ offered himself as a sacrifice for the sins of those who will trust in him by faith. Know that if you trust in him today, your sins are forgiven. You are made right with God the Father. And then you too join with us as fellow brothers and sisters, enduring the life of this world, awaiting the life to come. It would also be wrong of me in, in a sermon of this nature not to say this. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are trusting in Christ, those of you who have heard these words today, who have heard the gospel, hang in there. Hang in there, dear Christian. 
These words are as much for you as they're for the lost. Because these are your hope. These are your anchor. These are your battle cry. These are how we endure. This is our foundation. Our foundation is him. You don't have to do it on your own. You don't have to make it by your own strength. You don't have to last by yourself. You are not an island. You are a community of people. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we bear your burdens with you. And they're all being bore by Jesus himself. And so if you're here today and you're trusting in Christ, hang in there. Hang in there, dear Christian. The day is coming. We've sung it this morning. Again, if you go to the book of Revelation and you read those final chapters, the trumpet will sound soon. That day is soon approaching. And it's by his strength that you will be able to endure. I close by this. I love how Paul says it in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, being Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this we toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within us. This is how we suffer in this world. This is how we live. This is how we endure. Would you please pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, many of us come to you today weary to fight this battle each and every day. It is tiring. And there are many days that many of us lay our heads down, feel like we're losing the fight. We feel like Satan has the upper hand and that there's no way we'll make it. Remind us through your word, while we are called to submission, while we're called to honor those over us, when they treat us rightly or when they don't, we only do so through the power of Christ. It's not through our strength. It's not through what we say. It's through him. And he is enough. We may not be, but he is enough. And Lord, please remind us as your church that we don't struggle alone. Please help us to reach out to one another. Help us to lean upon you. Your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Father, we need you. It's becoming harder and harder to submit and to struggle in this world. But we worship you and we anticipate the day that is to come and it is coming soon. And we thank you for that, O Lord. Be with us here and now. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.